Welcome, I'm Miri. I have degrees in history, biblical studies, and ancient Hebrew, and this is Jesus Curious. This podcast exists for anyone who feels like you don't know a lot about Jesus or were taught about a Jesus that might be different from the one who really existed. If you're not religious or super religious, no matter the religion, and you're curious about the real Jesus from a cultural, historical, and textual perspective, this podcast is for you. I recommend you start from the beginning as each episode builds on the last. Uh, Last week, we did a very, very high-level overview of Jewish history, or the Jewish story, starting with Genesis and ending with the return of the Jews from the Babylonian exile. And uh, yes, I left out a lot of details. But the purpose was to just to get all of us on the same page on the timeline of things and how they relate. If you feel like you are very comfortable with Old Testament or uh, Jewish scripture history, then hey, go ahead and skip it. That's really good. But if you're not, I recommend you start there. This week, we're going to do a very high-level overview of Greek and Roman cultures and how they relate to the land of Judea. Uh, We're going to get specific about the Maccabean Revolt and how that even affected the mindset of literally everything that is happening in first century Israel. So this is going to be a really interesting podcast this week, and let's get to it because this is so important you guys this is so 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 important uh and it's not going to be boring i swear to you so let's get to let's 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 really dive deep all right so in 400 there is this political chaos amongst the greeks and there's this like rise of macedonia and it's king philip so there's Plato, right? So Plato, he had the forums. Who I don't who cares? He's a philosopher, right? And he had an academy. And he teaches until around like 347 BC. And his student is Aristotle. And Aristotle teaches from around like 350 to 320. And then Aristotle, he uh, he like tutors uh, Alexander the Great of Macedonia. Okay? So that's all you know. Plato, he teaches Aristotle. Aristotle teaches Alexander the Great. So this pow- there's this power struggle between like the Macedonians and the Greeks, and the, the Greeks are in a real struggle to establish their culture as like the superpower at this time. And like a, and their thing that they're gonna do is they're gonna make Greek the language of the land, and they are really successful at doing it. But Philip II of Macedon, he conquers Greece in 338, and he has victory over Athens in 338. But then Alexander the Great, the student of Aristotle, he comes to power in 336. Philip is murdered, and here comes Alex. He's going to take charge, and he's going to lead the Greeks, and he's going to invade the Persians. Persian Empire, and he attacks Persia in 334 BC. All right, so the Jews welcome Alexander the Great because they're like, we are kind of in exile in Persia, and we like this guy Alexander because I don't know why. Um, 
But Daniel said something. The prophet? He said something about this guy Alexander, so we will maybe join him. Because Daniel said this guy's coming up after Cyrus. So a lot of Jews joined Alexander the Great in welcoming his rise to power. So uh, Alexander, uh, he like takes his army across the Tigris River and he conquers the Persian army in 331 BC. And then he conquers Israel in 330 BC. And at 25 years old, the ripe old age, he becomes the emperor of the world. Man, 25. What was I doing at 25? Definitely not that. So, uh, but you know, there's a big price to pay for doing so much at 25 because at 32 he dies. Um, and he dies in 323 BC. But Alexander, he still had a lot to do. He started the Hellenistic period and this is where this idea of let's make everything Greek. You know, my tutor, Aristotle, he was so smart. He had the best ideas. And I think the whole world could take advantage of those ideas. Um, and a place that Alexander really loved was Egypt. He really thought that Egypt was a fantastic culture and it would make be made even more fantastic if he introduced the ideas of the Greeks. And so he kind of just went down there and did this kind of like mishmash of Egyptian culture and Greek culture and started the Ptolemaic period of the pharaohs. Um, so, and he, and he made a city called Alexandria after himself. Um, and Alexandria was a very cool city. It still is I, on my bucket list. I really, really, really want to go there. In fact, there is this National Geographic special called The Lost Tomb of Alexander the Great. I think it's on Disney Plus that you can see it. Um, it is so good. I can't tell you. Like, they go to these tombs, these Greek tombs, and the, the tombs will have, like, these carve-outs of Greek gods, but with, like, you know, the, the falcon arm. It's amazing. Like, falcon wings, and it's so cool. Okay, so they... He makes Alexandria. Alexandria becomes like the New York of the Mediterranean. It's just welcoming all of these different cultures. It's this huge port city. Uh, they create this sauce that becomes like the ketchup of the Mediterranean. It sounds terrible, whatever it was, very salty. Anyway, um, and it becomes this melding of like this east meets west. No, I would say more north meets south. In any case, it was cool. And he loved Egyptian culture and he brought this Macedonian thing. And he's like, this is what the earth could be if everybody just, you know, worshiped Greek gods and spoke Greek and dressed Greek 
and had amphitheaters and were Greek. And so, you know, he had already conquered Judea. So around 250 BC, that's when the Septuagint translation began in Alexandria of the Hebrew scriptures. So they began a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures then uh, in Alexandria because they, they wanted all of the world's knowledge in one place. It's had this huge library of all of the world's knowledge in Alexandria. And they were just gonna be like, we are going to know it all. But there became this power struggle between the Greeks of the North and the Greeks of the South, of course, uh, after Alexander died. So the Greeks of the South were the more Egyptian ones, they were the Ptolemies, and then the Greeks of the North were the Seleucids. And of course, in between these two rival uh, powers was Judea, and it was a big struggle. And it left them in this permanent state of instability. And uh, so Jerusalem was captured by Antiochus III, um, which was under the Seleucids in the north. And, um, and then they were ruled by Antiochus Epiphanes IV uh, from 200 BC. And... Um, in 175 BC, Jerusalem was made a Hellenistic city. In fact, their uh, priests were given these Greek names like Jason. So under Jewish tradition, it's largely accepted by historians was that Greek Hellenization meant thorough assimilation. So Conquered areas were not only required to speak Greek, uh, which they already did, they were required to participate in Greek religion. And sacrifices to Greek gods were expected in order to sure, ensure good crops, which the Greek government benefited from, and victory in battle, and all, all of that stuff. And by the time that Jerusalem was made a Hellenistic city, uh, Jewish practice was outlawed and, and nobody really understands why they came down like that hard on the Jews. They just were, I don't know, they just said, Antiochus Epiphanes just decided to be super mean about it. And so the temple was defiled and the pig was sacrificed in the Holy of Holies. Uh, children were not allowed to be taught Torah, babies were not allowed to be circumcised, and everyone was required to become Greek. Uh, Besides ritualistic endeavors, Jewish life and Greek life differed in morality, like big time. Uh, so on a great scale. So like, let me just give you one example. Pedophilia, specifically man-boy relationships were common as payment between teacher and pupil in Greek culture. And this is, this is absolutely forbidden and, and just anathema, according to Torah. Just, just totally off, this, off the rocker, off the scale, totally wrong. So it was becoming really, really bad, really oppressive, especially the temple thing. You know, defiling the temple and, and making it a pagan temple was just really 
beyond the pale. So Mattathias, this dude, Mattathias, he has five sons and their names are Yehuda or Judah, Yonatan or Jonathan, Eliezer, Shimon or Simon, Yochanan or John, and, and they lived in Modin. So Modi'in is this small town in the hill country of Judea, and it's about halfway off like the main highway between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem today. So I would say like an hour in each direction. Um, so, and it was recently rebuilt as the city of tomorrow. And it's like actually like a really nicely planned city. They have like really cool parks and nice apartments and things there. Super bougie mall. So, um, and they have some offshoot settlements, like some Orthodox, some like ultra Orthodox, where they don't allow internet and things like that. So anyway, back to BC. Mattathias thought his sons like he taught them to be really, really faithful to Torah. And his son, Judah in particular, was very zealous for the temple and his faith. And he led his brothers and other Judeans in this rebellion against the Greeks. And um, Judah and his brothers became known as the Maccabees because the Maccabee meant hammer. They were just like, boom, gonna, just find some nails. We're in search of nails. <laughs> so uh, they started off small in the hill country, taking little towns and outposts, and eventually they just took Jerusalem and they reclaimed the temple. So the Holy Temple was rededicated on the 25th of Kislev and is celebrated today as the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. Um, and uh, the only place in the Bible where the holiday of Hanukkah is mentioned is actually in the New Testament. It's in John 10, 22. Uh, and it's Yeshua or Jesus celebrating it. It says uh, in John 10, 22, at the time, the feast of dedication or at the time Hanukkah took place in Jerusalem, it was winter and Yeshua or Jesus was walking in the temple area in the portico of Solomon. So there you go. The Hanukkah story you probably heard, it goes something like this. Uh, when it was time to rededicate the temple, the Jews only had enough oil for one day, but miraculously it lasted eight and that's it. <laughs> so. And it sounds very nice, but uh, this story does, doesn't actually appear anywhere until seven years after this event. Uh, very likely the reason Hanukkah is eight days, according to earlier sources, is that it took eight days to build the altar to rededicate the temple. But we just don't have a definitive answer on the question as to why the holiday lasts so long. So. In any case, uh, so the recapture of Jerusalem and the temple wasn't enough for Judah, Maccabee, and the, and the other Maccabees. Uh, they sought to eject the Seleucids entirely from Judea. And because of some other distractions that the Seleucids were dealing with, uh, and with the help of some Romans, uh, they succeeded. 
Good on them. So they lead the revolt against the Seleucid rule and they create their own rule. They call them, and they're called the Hasmoneans and they rule Judea for a while. Good on them. Um, so they end up ruling, let's see. Yes, Simon becomes a high priest in 142 to 135 BC. So, cause like a bunch of the brothers pass away. Okay, so, and then Simon's the last one. And then under Simon, Judea is finally under total Hasmonean control. And it's the beginning of Jewish nationalism. So the Maccabees are seen as like these Jewish superheroes, okay? The Jews learn that like with, with all this faith and zealotry, God will help them fight back because they're on the right side of history, even against the strongest army because they're on the right side of history. God's going to help them. Anything is possible if the right people are willing to stand up at the right time. And we can see from the names we run into in the New Testament that for centuries, most people named their children after the Maccabees. So the names Judah, of course, like we have Judas, uh, you know, Jude, so Simon, obviously Peter was named Simon, um, Eliezer, John, Mattathias, that um, we see these names in the disciples' names. Uh, so, you know, yeah, very, very popular. And I think of this so similarly to the American Revolutionary War. So a ragtag fledgling military up against one of the biggest superpowers of the world fighting a just cause. And while someone from Europe may encounter an American today without knowing any of American history and understand some of our basic traits, it's hard to understand our raw independence without understanding our origin story. Uh, that's, that's like the Revolutionary War, like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Sons of Liberty, that's been stamped upon us since we were children. So the same can be said of the people who lived in the first century Judea. So in 135, Simon the Hasmonean, the Maccabee, he dies. And this guy named Yochanan Hirkanus I can't say his name, but in any case, he he, re, he emerges as the high priest. At the same time, we have Pharisees and Sadducees show up. We also have the Qumran community show up. The Qumran community is this isolated community that live in um the mountains or the hills by the Dead Sea. And they kind of take this vow of purity and from them we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. So 
this new guy, John, he destroys the Samaritan temple in 109 BC, which I don't actually know a lot about, but I'm sure becomes really important once we meet some Samaritans in the New Testament. Um, Cleopatra becomes the last pharaoh of Egypt. Isn't this crazy? Like, Cleopatra is running alongside all of this stuff. I feel like we put these in such, in such differentiated bo boxes, like Brutus and, you know, Caesar and Cleopatra, but also all of these people from, that are very important in the Bible, it's all happening at the same time. I think that's like really cool. So, and it's happening right next door to each other, by the way. So, next, the Romans come into power in 67 BC over Judea. Who were the Romans? Good question. So, Romans were the ultimate narcissists and they were the usurpers and conquest was their defining feature and motive as opposed to the greeks who developed this culture out of this rich mythos of gods and goddesses and philosophy the romans decided they needed to create a mythos and just stole it <laughs> they just stole it from the greeks like they they just renamed some characters along the way. They renamed some of the villains after their rivals. <laughs> and it was the goal of the Romans to become masters of the Mediterranean and control all the ports. They of course had control over like the Italian peninsula, but then defeated Carthage to the south so that anyone who wanted to squeeze their ship through they'd be sure to collect the port taxes on both ends. This is why Judea was so very important to the Romans as an outpost. Uh, it connected the, the anywhere east to the west, but it also connected any kind of travel, land travel north to south. It's said that with the conquering of Judea, the Romans collected more money in crossing duties than they could have ever printed themselves. The Romans also collected gods from the people they conquered. So if the people prayed to a certain god, that was like, okay, fine, cool, keep praying to that god. <laughs> Maybe that god will help us win our next war. Uh, just make sure your priests or religious class keep the people in line, that's all. This was also true for the Jews. The Romans established the Sadducees as the priest class to run the Jewish temple. The Sadducees were answerable to the Romans. They were seen as hacks or political figures not really dedicated to Torah or to God. Um, priests were the people's devout teaching, the Pharisees, sorry, the Pharisees were the people's devout teaching class. They were very dedicated to keeping Torah correctly and teaching others to do so in sincerity. Many have suggested that Jesus or Yeshua himself was a Pharisee. So it's 
also more than likely that John the Baptist was a kind of Pharisee. In other words, like the Sadducees were the politicians and the Pharisees were the pastors and priests and rabbis of the time. The Romans were similar to the Greeks in their lack of morals as well. Uh, so pedophilia, same thing, totally rampant. Uh, but also if a baby was born that was undesirable in any way, it was often just left in the dump to the elements. In Ephesians, the writer Paul lauds the Christians in Ephesus for adopting these abandoned babies, um, which is really cool, but we, <laughs> I don't know. But, like, I don't want to just sugarcoat it. We know from the tombs <laughs> that they often got these weird nicknames like trashy or stinky or walks with a limp or something. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, politically correct did not exist in the first century. <laughs> You know these these kids were adopted, so that's great. <laughs> I don't I don't know what else to say to that. <laughs> Before the Romans really took over as an empire, um, archaeologists often talk about how there is evidence of localized wealth. So if it wasn't like wealth, it was just like this generalized middle class. Uh, people had similar amounts of land and shelter. And so when when Romans took over certain areas, like this is very visible in Carthage, they mechanized industry and made the business and movement of resources and wealth much more efficient. As a result, there was this vast, vast expanse between the rich and the poor an owner class and a subservient class. And I think our knee-jerk reaction is to be overly critical of this. We definitely see it today, especially with like, you know, Bill Gates and, and this tech industry kind of thing. And then like this kind of more um, blue collar worker or you know, just kind of like these big companies where the CEOs get paid these massive sums of money and their workers get paid very, very little in comparison. Um, and yeah, so our knee-jerk reaction is to be very critical of this, but we need to remember that this kind of scale of industry has made technological advancement possible that had never been seen before. And in the case of the Romans, the first we could talk about is the aqueducts. So access to water was revolutionary to most of the world and it was everywhere. It's very, very obvious you can see the aqueducts in like, you know, Caesarea in Israel or Caesarea as they call it um, in Hebrew. But if you go even further north than Caesarea, you can just see them running through people's backyards. 
the aqueducts. We were in Akko, we got lost. And it, it was just, it shocked me to see these ancient Roman aqueducts just running through, you know, kids playing around them in their, in their yards. And they're still standing. And Roman baths were available to everyone regardless of status. And it's possible that having something as simple as a bath could have helped hygiene in the general population and really helped, um, you know, stop diseases in, in a huge way, especially when you're talking about ur urban centers. So, and then second, of course, is the Roman roads. And Roman roads are so, they were so well constructed that they still stand today throughout the Middle East and Africa and Europe, but all the way up to the United Kingdom. Um, they encourage trade, and in some way, it was like a great equalizer. Uh, they did offer upward mobility for those willing to take the risk of adventure and find some kind of wealth somewhere else. Um, and of course, this was the environment that Yeshua or Jesus, he comes and he proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand and he dies on a tree, raises again, and his followers write this down and the word goes forth and the word is forever, and the world is forever changed at lightning speed. And, you know, we may find a lot in common with modern day United States and ancient Rome, when we think about the rich and the poor and the mechanization of industry. But in that criticism, we need to remember that we are afforded so many opportunities when we would not have been if we lived entirely on a local level. So the Bible says that Noah was righteous and his generation would he have been righteous in another generation? Probably not, but that was not an expectation for him because God was aware of his environment. And I think it's up to us to realize that there's a shortcoming in each generation, so much more than others, but no matter what, you know, we need to just choose to be righteous with, within the generation, kind of accept it is, what it is use it to its greatest advantage for what the the hand that we've been dealt so anyway that's my little soapbox on that part but I'm, i want to go backwards a little bit to my other note about the pharisees i'm sorry i wrote my notes a little bit awkward so i talked about the pharisees before about how, how they were more of like uh the the people who were very sincerely wanting to please god um you know, more of the pastoral group uh, in Israel. They weren't the in power in the temple. They weren't the political class. Um, so at this time, chief among the Pharisees are the schools of Hillel and Shammai. So Hillel was born in 110 BC and Shammai was born in 50 BC. And they are known for being fundamentally opposed to one another when it comes to halakha. Halakha means walking out, or like in other words, how we actually practically do Torah. So, you know, like 
if it says, you know, you shall not light a fire on Shabbat, what does, okay, how do, like, in all instances, what does light a fire mean? So, that kind of thing. So, there are a lot of disputes in the New Testament um, come down to who is right, Hillel or Shammai. You, like, you would not know this unless you understood their teachings. Um, we learn as we go through the Gospels that Yeshua or Jesus does, does prefer the opinion of one or the, over the other, but not exclusively. 47 BC, King Herod is crowned King of the Jews and he starts his rule. All right, and he begins ruling in Judea. Um, and he's like doing all the things to make it, you know, just the best. So he wants to build this, uh, all the, he builds Caesarea, Caesarea or whatever. And he builds Masada, which is this huge, huge palace for him, like near the Dead Sea, because they just want to like ink out all of the salt they can, because they just getting the taxes from people traveling, not enough. Let's get out all of the money we can from Judea as possible. Um, and he builds a temple for he like he like destroys the old one, he puts up a new one. Um Meanwhile, in 30 BC, Cleopatra dies. Like, ah, 30 BC, Cleopatra dies from the asp. Isn't that crazy how close this is? And she's just too weak to walk away. That kills me. Again, Augustus becomes emperor of Rome. Amazing. I wonder if any of you guys are as hyped as me. Okay, so, um, and... 5 BC, Augustus Caesar is the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And that means that he's really proclaiming himself a god. He's becoming more than human, superhuman. And this is really the point that the Romans are being seen by the Jews as a foreign occupying force. The Jews are automatically looking back to when they were occupied by the Seleucids and this greater Judah Maccabee is gonna rise and perhaps this greater Judah Maccabee will in fact be the Messiah, the Moshiach and liberate them once and for all from these outside forces. Uh, so there are even these group, like this group of zealots who are training privately. <laughs> They're, they're the ultimate uh, survivalists. And they are essentially terrorists. And their intent is inflicting violence on the Romans and Jews who accommodate them to avenge the name of God. <laughs> That's who they are. Uh, one of those zealots becomes one of Yeshua's disciples. So what do you think about that? That happened. <laughs> So with all of this unrest, Judea is such an important money pot. The occupation of Rome, of the Romans, is like becoming just so oppressive. Like it, like it's squeezing them. It's just oh, because they, they feel the they feel the they, they they feel the Jews just becoming more and more upset, just more um, 
ill content. But they're also just wanting to get more money. They want to extract the salt. They want the 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 travel duties. And then they want just like the taxes on the citizenry. And it's at this moment that Jesus is born. Like He's at this moment when every Jew is like, where's Judah Maccabee? Do y'all get that? <laughs> Does that make sense? It's so crucial. And they don't teach this in Sunday school. It, you know what I mean? It's like so important to know that this is, this is the temperature of the moment. And um, it is, you could light a match, the whole place sets on fire. So, tune in next week to find out. No, it's definitely, I left you. I left you on this threshold moment, but that's where we're at. And um, so critical, so critical. And it's such a cool time for God to intervene and be like, hey, here's, here's my son. I'm going to put him into history right at this very moment. So thank you all for listening. Um, yeah, I don't think I got you into too much of the weeds, but we are filling in this tapestry of where we are when we enter this Judean world in the first century. And I really hope that you share this with a friend. I, I think this is crucial, crucial information. And it can transform the way that we read the Bible and understand the attitudes of the people that we read about. So next week, we will be starting in Matthew 1. I'm so excited. No holds barred. And boy, does Matthew step in it right from the beginning. It's one of the most controversial passages of the Bible. I cannot wait to discuss it. We will be having Rabbi Joshua Brombach of Simchat Yisrael Messianic Synagogue in West Haven, Connecticut joining me. He is an expert on this topic. I know I have heard it heard it from him before and it's going to be so good you guys you need to listen to it and it's going to be a lot of fun and he's literally just like one of the most likable people on earth so please tune in if you have any questions you can contact me at jesuscuriouspodcast at gmail.com we are on social media at jesuscurious on tiktok and instagram be sure to subscribe on apple Podcasts, at your spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts and once I met a man who was murdered Raised on a stake like a snake But in Jerusalem and you could see the truth in him And it shone like an innocent child Shone like an innocent child Yet grieved like a man with an adulterous wife He stood in the midst of exile As the kind hand that extends to humanity From the depths of Hashem The walking instructions of him Deeper than the holes in the dark And higher than the stars and reefs Further than time tells a soul Yet closer than the breath that you breathe
mention of great Israel was born on Sukkot, grew strong in the instruction, healing in the junctions of darkness. Inspected four days and found no blemish. Four days and found no blemish. One day wickedness hoped to save the rabbis. God has been willfully gave himself over as the ransom lamb of Passover to buy back Israel from the world's disorder. First fruit of the resurrection from the dead. Your love is deeper than the holes in the dark.